Crazy Chester Radio Hour. Thanks for tuning in. The theme song you just heard is performed by Wet Willis, Jimmy Hall and Funky Chester. My name is Andreas Warner. I'm a record producer, songwriter and owner of Crazy Chester Records. If you'd like to find out more about Crazy Chester Records or the Crazy Chester Radio Hour, check out our website at crazychesterrecords.com. My guest today is Mitch Mann. Mitch is one of the great guitar players from Muscle Shoals. He's known around town for his high-energy playing on the electric as well as his proficiency on the acoustic guitar. I had the pleasure of producing Mitch's acoustic album Blackwater Creek a few years ago. Mitch plays live with his band The Mojo Mixers, The Alabama Bus Boys, and Yellowhammer and is also a member of The Fiddleworms, Alabama's great rock band. Welcome to the Crazy Chester Radio Hour, Mitch Mann. Hello, hello. Hey, thanks for being my guest. Today, um, I usually start in kind of in the beginning, and then we'll work our way up to now. Okay. But I'm gonna just violate that rule right now. <laughs> <laughs> we met about five years ago, I would say. Yep. I've seen you perform with the Fiddleworms before, which is you play guitar right. in the Fiddleworm, and I had an opportunity during Handyfest, which which takes place here every summer, to hear you play an acoustic solo gig uh-huh. and I was just I was smitten I mean I I was just like this is so cool and that's kind of how our story started or at least our collaboration because I'm like we need I don't know what but more people need to get to hear that right it was and great I'm the like, way you approached me that day if, if I'm not mistaken that very day you said we've got to record this yeah. and, I, and you know you always I mean as a musician you hear you hear stuff all the time you know oh let's get together and write oh let's record let's do this let's do that and usually it never happens it never materializes and I think it, it must have been on my face because I was like oh yeah cool let's do that and you were like no 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 <laughs> we need to do this I'm serious and hey we went from there well, I kind of heard everything that day, you know, the way you arranged those songs. Although it's just you and acoustic guitar, right. it's a very full thing in itself. Right. Yeah, well, if you're up there by yourself, you you, you, you got to fill up space, you know. Yeah. And too, a, a long time ago doing solo gigs, I noticed, you know, I didn't want to get up there and strum all night, you know. And it's just like you're banging away on a tin, you know, tin can <laughs> strumming all night you know so I started mixing up things with finger picking songs and then started mixing up things with trying to incorporate finger picking a little melody in there and even a solo if I had to but yet keep it all going so I, I kind of started falling into that rut you know trying to make sure everything just sounded I wasn't doing the same thing all night and I was mixing it up and making sure that yeah you're just not strumming through a song without doing any kind of guitar work or anything yeah. So, so yeah, and that, you're using different tunings too, right? And, 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 and uh, different uh, guitars, sometimes a twelve string. Mm-hmm. Um, so, okay, that's what how we met. Now, by the time we met, you've been doing this for a long time already. You grew up just a little south of here, about an hour south. Yeah, yeah by Blackwater Creek, right? Uh, which you ended up titling an instrumental, yes, and then we ended up calling you record Blackwater Creek too. Right. So you growing up near Blackwater Creek, what were some of your earliest memories of music around you? Um, I had an older brother and sister. I'm the youngest of three. My uh, brother's the oldest. Sister's in the middle, and uh. 
he, you remember it back in the day, like in the seventies and maybe even before the, in the back of magazines, they had the little, was it the Columbia something, you know, you'd give a penny and you'd start, and then you were in this club. Like record club. Yes. Yeah. And every month you had to, you know, and, and my, my parents, you know, of course, by the time I come along, <laughs> came along, they wouldn't let me do it because they had learned from my brother. He had done that. And, you know, you're pretty much locked in. <laughs> May even be a cult. I'm not for sure. No. But, um, but so he had to, you know, every month he had to come up with, I don't know how many he had to buy to stay in the, th- the club. So he always had stuff like Jim Croce. That's where I learned, you know, got into Jim Croce and Foreigner. And he just had all kinds of music laying around. And then my sister came along. And I got into Elvis and the Beatles through her. And I was telling somebody the other day, I may be getting off track, but um, we were talking about, you know, for, for my generation, you know, people talk about when Kennedy was shot, they know where they were. I, I can remember, you know, the day Elvis died and, the you know, where I was when Lennon got shot. And uh, a lot of that was because when Elvis died, my sister was so, you know, she was, it tore her up, you know, so she went into her room and played Elvis records all day. And then when John Lennon was shot, she had just bought, if I'm not mistaken, was it the woman that had just come out on a 45? Same thing. She locked her, you know, locked herself in her room that day playing John Lennon records. So I just kind of, I got it from them. Of course, we, you know, we were in church and everything. You'd hear like the organ and piano at church. So I guess between all of that, but then it really hit me and everybody laughs at me for this, but you know, being a kid, say maybe nine, ten years old, I had cousins that were into Kiss, and man, you know, and, and Russell Medford uh, from the Fiddle Worms, we always talk about this, and this was, I mean, when you're reading comic books and Spider-Man and all this stuff, and the next thing, you know, you're introduced to almost a comic superhero playing a guitar, you know, you just start going in a different avenue, and then you know, getting older, I would read in, in uh, magazines the interviews with those guys from Kiss, and then, you know, the guitar players would always talk about that they loved, you know, Jimmy Page, Jimi Hendrix, Eric Clapton. So I'd start digging into those guys, and then I'd get with those guys, and they'd be in interviews that I would read, and they'd be talking about Muddy Waters, Blind Lemon Jefferson, Robert Johnson, stuff like that. follow back. Right, and it's, it's a peculiar place to start with a glam band with makeup and, <laughs> you know, all that stuff, but that's where it took me. And, um, and yeah, so, I mean, I grew up with, like, Kiss and the Evil Knievel, you know? It was, <laughs> it was very bombastic and over the top, but then digging backwards, you get into the real, I mean, you know, I hate to say that, but, the, you know, the better stuff, like the blues and the, where it all came from, yeah. really. What was the guitar your first instrument? Yes, I, I I say that has a because I played drums in in school and I I think I went into band maybe around sixth grade but it seems like all about the same time you know I wanted to play guitar and I think my, you know there was always one around it seemed like either a cousin had one or my dad had tried to play and gave it up and it was under a bed or something but um but yeah. Uh, I just, you know, kind of went from there, yeah. But the the guitar and, and, and the drum, it all can't, because if I could have played guitar at school, I would have, you know, but to me it was like if I couldn't be Jimmy Page at school, I'd be, I'd try to be John Bonham <laughs> and play the drums. And I, the only regret about playing the drums at school, you know, you were in marching band and you were in concert band, and then, of course, in concert band, you just played a, I played a snare. And then in marching band, we were so, uh, I mean, I, the school that I went to was so small. Um, we always needed somebody to do something. So I've marched with a bass drum. I've marched with the cymbals, tritom, snare, everything. Um, but so I was doing that at school, and then I kept on, you know, hassling and aggravating my mom and dad to get me a guitar. And finally, he bought me a decent one, and we got up with a lady that was, she was actually an elementary teacher that had taught my sister, I think, fourth or fifth grade, and she sang and played piano at church. And she, you know, could play a little bit, basically just strumming through songs. And so, you know, she told my mom, she said, I can teach him, you know, and get him at least to where he's just playing chords and strumming along the songs. And so I took from her maybe about a year, a little over, and uh, she came to my mom and she said, you know, I've taught him everything, you know, all that I can do, you know. Because she just, like I said, just strummed and played chords. But that got me on the track. And, and about the same time, I think that's when that 
you know, hot licks videos started coming out on VHS and um, tablature books started, and they may have existed before, but I mean, it just seemed like they were, those tab magazines were everywhere. Yeah. So, you know, you take it upon yourself. It's like I can, uh, the first song I think I ever played through, I got a guitar magazine that had Stairway to Heaven in it. And I mean, I just locked myself in a room for two months, <laughs> making myself every day at least, you know, go 12 bars further, you know, and just until you got the whole song. So, but yeah, the drums and, and that, and, and the, my only regret about playing the drums is I never, I never got around to playing a full kit, you know. I always kind of marched in concert band with snares and stuff like that, but I never got around to a full kit, and I, I wish I would have. Yeah, so... When, when did you start, you know, making music with other kids? Did you start a band or join a band pretty soon after that, or took that? Did that took a while? Take a while? Um, I had a friend in high school. He was on the drum line too, and of course, he, you know, he was doing what he wanted to. He wanted to be a drummer, and of course, I was just well, I can't play guitar here at school, so I'll be, you know. So he and I started getting together and kind of playing some course we were <laughs> we were I'm sure we were awful but then from there he was one year older so when he graduated he came up to Phil Campbell to a little junior college there called the Northwest Community College and they had a really good music program there and at the time you know you go in and they were they were giving away some little music scholarships and the scholarship would pay for everything except your books um, so he went up there and got a scholarship. And so while I'm finishing school that year, while he's there, you know, he would just come back and hang out whenever he wasn't in school. And so he started telling me, he's like, you know, if you're going to go to college, you ought to come up here. You can probably get a, a scholarship on your guitar. So I went in and, and did the tryout and, and I got one. And, you know, my parents were, <laughs> they loved that. All we had to do was pay for books. And of course, they loved it because they thought I would get in there and actually apply myself to the <laughs> to the real studies, but I didn't. <laughs> and I crammed that two year junior college experience into three. <laughs> and uh, but that was it, a lot of it too was part of the the scholarship. If you got the scholarship, you had to be in every you know performance kind of thing that you know everything they throw at you. You had to take those first, then get your academic. Well, it got to the point where, you know, I was so bogged down with just music classes, theory, and, you know, my uh, my guitar, you know, they had somebody, I, well, that's where I met Jay Johnson, actually. They didn't have a guitar instructor there, and they started reaching out, and Jay Johnson, Jimmy Johnson's son, um, they got him for a while, and he came in and was showing, I'll never forget, he kind of showed me harmony stuff. We worked on uh, Boston, you know, some of that stuff, Tom Scholl stuff, some of that crazy, really good harmony, guitar lines. Um, so anyway, I got there and, and started playing and then met other people, and that's where I started hooking up with the first guys that I ever played with up here in Muscle Shoals. Um, we had a little band, and it, the name of the band was LSD30, and of course everybody thinks it's the drug connection, but actually it was because at that junior college, there was an older guy that we had theory, music theory with that he had like, you know, Gotten older and decided to come back to college. So he was there. His name was Doug Reed. And he had been in Vietnam, and the ship that he was on was called LS, you know, LSD-30. And he said what it was, and I may have this wrong, but something about landing dock ship or something, and then the number represented kind of what port it came out of. And, again, I may have that wrong, but something like that. So, anyway, we were trying to come up with a band name, and – one of the guys, oh, we had a call what Doug was talking about, and everybody laughed, and, you know, then, well, we can't do that, you know, and I said, no, we ought to, because, you know, it's the double entendre, you know, we know what it, and then that would be the whole, you know, if somebody come up. Conversation and, story. Right, con yeah. exactly. I thought, you know, that would be a great story to kind of explain to somebody, no, it's not about that, but then, too, if somebody were to, you know, wanted to think that way, sure, whatever, but that's what it, it really meant, but. We came up here and started, I'll never forget, a place on Hatch Boulevard. It's called the Filling Station. It was an old filling station that they had redone into a club. And all this is, I think, maybe 90, 91 or 2, somewhere in there, maybe 93. 
we were, you know, at college, learning how to play and trying to get up here and get into clubs. First club I ever went to up here, went to see Jay Johnson, Radio Tokyo. I think at Club 13, maybe that was what it was called at the time. But anyway, so we started getting in here and, you know, trying to get gigs booked and play. But the, the fill-in station, Carl Dunlop had it at the time, walked in. And we were like, we, you know, we, we'd like to get booked, you know. And he said, well, okay, well, have you got a demo? We, we demo? <laughs> no. <laughs> he said, well, you got any pictures? No. <laughs> and he said, do you have a song list? And I said, I'll be right back. And I, I want to say we went out to the car and just started writing stuff down, every song that we knew. And I think the very first song we put on there was For What It's Worth. You know, Stop, Hey, What's That Sound? And um, when I came back in and laid the paper down, I was like, we got a song, Liz. And he looked at it and he said, oh, I love that song for what it's worth. I love that song. He's like, yeah, I'll book you in here, so-and-so, so-and-so, and I'll pay you this. And that's how we got our first gig. Didn't even have a demo or a picture. <laughs> we just, I think a couple of us walked in there and jotted a song list down and for what it's worth got us the gig. So we started playing there and we started playing. It was a place called Club 13. So one weekend we'd play Club 13, one weekend we'd play the filling station, and then one weekend we'd play a place called the Oceans and Prairies, which used to be the old fog cutter. And that would be our month. You know, we'd have maybe a weekend off or a weekend that we'd try to get out of town and play somewhere. But started there and then kind of got out of that band and then started playing with the Fiddle Worms around 97, maybe 98, somewhere in there. And I've been with them off and on since then. Were you aware of the... His music history being made here when you moved here, is there something you learned over, over time? I, I was, but just not the depth of it. I mean, I'm still learning. I mean, you introduced me. I mean, I'd always heard about Eddie Hinton, but I, I mean, I didn't get into Eddie Hinton as much, you know, as I have until you came along. So, yeah, you just start, you know, Kelvin and some of our other my guitar heroes around here, you know, start hearing them talking about, oh, I played with him or he was great. And again, just like the thing before, it's like, oh, I need to make note of that and go find that dude and, you know, get in and hear what's going on. Same way I did with Kiss when I was ki a kid, you know, and I'd read Pete Townsend. Who's Pete Townsend, you know, or Jimi Hendrix or whatever, and just then you'd go from there. So your early band here, were those the guys that are – Connected to the Johnny Cash. Yes, story. if you ever see the Johnny Cash picture, where we, <laughs> I've got a pic, uh, I've got a tattoo of Johnny Cash on my, on my uh, right arm, and it was with the, we got the tattoos at the same time. Me and the the singer from LSD Thirty, Chad Green, we went and got our tattoos together, and one day he called me and and uh, he said, I'm gonna go get a tattoo today. Come with me. I was like, okay, I'll go with you and I'll get one. He's like, well, I'm, I'm gonna get this. I can't even dream catch or something. Hey, what are you going to get? I said, I don't know. But I wanted to get one, and that was so stupid. But I wanted to get one, but didn't, you know, didn't have any idea. And it just so happened I was reading The Man in Black, and that, that I think it may be the last picture in the paperback anyway. It's just a shadow of him playing his guitar. So I got that shadow on my, on my arm. So anyway, we were going to Branson to see Johnny Cash. And a friend of mine, she said, I'll try to get you in with the fan club lady and see if you can't, you know, the, it was almost the whole band, I think, except the drummer. And uh, she said, I'll, I'll try to see if I can't get y'all to, you've got to meet him, you know. And I said, that's crazy. Ain't nobody going to let, you know, we, who, who are we? So anyway, she calls the lady, and she's the head of the fan club. And that, oh, I wish I could remember that lady's name. She was so sweet. But anyway, she actually was running the merch table. So when we got there, I realized it was her, and, and she was nice. But, I, I, you know, she had no intention of letting us meet him, I don't think, in the beginning. So anyway, uh, uh, Chad at the time said, well, what's the chances of us meeting him? And she said, ah, you know, ah. And the, the bass player, Brian Williams, goes, well, you know, he's got to see his tattoo on his arm. This Mitch has got Johnny's, and she said, no, not really. Come on. Show him. Show her, show her, show her. So... They roll up my sleeve and show her, and she's like, oh, yeah, he's got to see that. Okay, so here's the deal. The second to the last song is going to be da-da-da-da-da. As soon as y'all hear that song, hightail it up to the merch table, and I'm going to get y'all back there. And, again, I'm really thinking, you know, we'll cut around, and he'll be gone or something. So, But sure enough, we went up there, and, I mean, it was surreal. She just had us going through, 
crazy, like Phantom of the Opera type backstage, you know, around ropes and everything. And it was just wild. I mean, we literally turned a corner and there was an elevator and it was open and it was June and Johnny. And it was just like they were a picture. And I mean, I just kind of froze, you know, and he's just kind of looking at us like, who are you guys? And she goes, go on. And she shoved us and we went into the to the elevator with him. And he just kind of looks, but then he just, I mean, he just went, how are you guys doing? So, and I had brought my Martin guitar and I wanted him to sign it. And before all this, I got to backtrack a little bit. She had taken the guitar back and brought it back and he had signed it. And I looked at her at the time and I said, now, how do I know you just didn't go back there and sign that? She said, oh, he signed it. So anyway, when we got on the elevator, he goes, was that your Martin that I signed? And I said, oh yeah. And I said, but I I really wanted you to sign it on the front because he had signed it on the back. And um, about that time, I, I, for lack of a, it was security, I guess. These two big guys come up and kind of look like, what's going on? And he just looked at them. Johnny Cash looked at him and he goes, we're fine, and shut the door. And up we went to, I guess, their, you know, their dressing room, walked in, and he was, they were just so nice. And they talked to us for maybe 20, 25 minutes. Even, you know, well, play me something on your guitar. I played him something on the guitar took a bunch of pictures. <laughs> he had a table there with, and I'm sure fans and stuff had, you know, given him old pictures like from the 50s. And they were just scattered on this table. And Brian, he just walks over, or no, it was Chad. Chad walks over and he goes, oh, look, here's you with uh, uh, Luther Perkins or Scotty Moore or somebody, you know. And he goes, oh, yeah. And so that when they started talking about the pictures, and then our bass player, Brian, he's over there chatting it up with, with June. And at the time, her, dar- her daughter, Darlene, was doing pretty well. So we were talking about how, you know, it was cool that she was, her videos and stuff were doing well. And, um, but yeah, that, that, was, that was a surreal moment. But he was, he, both of, they were so nice. But I got to tell you, I, I have a face that everybody, when they see me, it's like, oh, you look like fill in the blank. I've been told I look like Bill Maher. I've been told I look like Robin Williams, you know, all this stuff. And one of them is Bono. So when we're sitting there, conversation kind of lulls, and he looks at me and he says, you know, you look like old Bono from U2. And I says, yeah, I I hear that some, you know. And he goes, hey, June, don't he look like Bono? And she says, yeah, he does. And he said, you know, we just, and they had just recorded, was it The Wanderer? I think on that Zuropa U2 album. And um, he said, yeah, they come to the, you know, they came and stayed with us and we recorded that. And he said, man, they couldn't get enough of June's cooking. He said, that Bono loved June's biscuits. <laughs> so we heard little stories like that. I love the stories. Just little silly ones like that. But yeah, that was something. If you get on my Facebook page, you'll, I think that picture's there somewhere. With us, with all of our, you know, that's where we got those Johnny Cash shirts at the show and we all had them on and we're sitting there with him. And I think that was right after that first America, uh, American Recordings record with Rick Rubin that uh, had like Delia's Gone and all that yeah. stuff. And he did a great show that night. But um, yeah, he he was still in fine form then. He he that was a good show and that was a treat to meet him and her. Did you ever go into a recording studio with that band? No, and I, I want to say that that's kind of why we started kind of, we all started getting married, and, you know, it was just kind of getting boring, I think, there for a while. And um, I, I really wanted to write and start, you know, doing original material, and it just never would happen. You know, we just, I don't know, we didn't have enough gumption in us at that time to do that type thing. And, and then I think that's kind of when the fiddle worms, you know, had the opportunity to go in, and I, that was totally, you know, upside down because LSD 30 was, I think we may have done one original tune, but for the most part, we were just cut, because Chad could sing Led Zeppelin just as good, I mean, I hate to say that, but at the time, he could do, he could do Robert Plant pretty close that Robert could, you know, so we were doing all kind of Zeppelin and stuff, and everybody was having fun, and that was, that was back when, even though there was good music out there but it seemed like everybody my age would go back to the 60s and 70s for music I mean we were all Doors fans we were all um, 
you know, Crosby, Stills, and Nash fans. I, I learned how to sing harmony from that, that first band because Chad and Brian and Stuart, they could all sing harmony, and I was the only one that couldn't. <laughs> and I'm, I'm sitting there scratching my head going, how are y'all doing that? Every time I try to hit a different note, I go right back to the, to the melody, you know. But just being around it, and it was starting to sink in about the time we all kind of split up, or it may have just been me leaving for a while, but when it you know came time to join the fiddle worms, Chris's harmony needed to be there. And so I, you know, I took it upon myself. It's like, all right, you've been around those guys learning it, you know, and you hadn't really stepped out and tried it. Now step up and do it, you know. And that was the first time I started singing harmony with anybody was with the fiddle worms and actually learning it from Chad and Brian and Stewart. Was Kenny and the C notes before the fiddle worms, or were you in the fiddle worms first? And then yeah, that it was the fiddle worms first. And I want to say the first time, and, and that's why I say I, I've kind of been in and out, because we started 97, 98, and I'm terrible with the time and the year, but, you know, Russell's mom got sick and passed away with cancer, and he took a break for a little while. So we kind of scattered, and then we all kind of came back together, or maybe it was just me and him coming back together, because we'd play, you know, uh, duo acoustic shows. And then, yeah, somewhere down the line, I think it, it happened that um, there was an unfinished album that they had started up in Nashville with Rodney Good that was married to um, Jamie O'Neill. Is that her name? Sorry. Um, but, uh, you know, the, and he, I think he talked to Rodney one day, and he was like, man, y'all need to come up here and finish this record. So we all kind of pulled back together and even Rob, because that, that was the guitar line there in the Fiddle Worms, you know, Chris was the original. Chris Quillen was the original guitar player, and he got killed in a car wreck, ninety four, ninety five, somewhere in there. Rob took Rob Malone, you know, filled in, and then he left after a year or two to go to Athens, and that's when he joined the Drive by Truckers for a little stint. Yeah. And after Rob left, that's when I came in, and I got. I'm, I'm thinking that was ninety seven going into ninety eight. Because it was about the t time that I married Julie, and we got married in March of '98, so somewhere in there. Yeah, and then Phil Worms they stopped for a while. Yeah, that's and then that's when the Kenny and the C notes thing, you know, and uh, Russell kind of put that together because we had, you know, we had met David and Donna and everything, and that's the thing about the Fiddle Worms. We go off in every different direction, one or two of us, three or four of us. You know, it's it's almost like a band or something will get mad at one and leave him out, and they'll do a project. Then it rolls around, and we all are doing things. But Yeah, and that was you, Russell Mefford, Donna Jean Gotcha McKay, David McKay, Kelvin, Kelvin Holly, and Tom Risher. Tom Risher, bless him, yes, Tom Risher Sr. And... Uh, I don't know if you can call it, you, you made a record, but there is a CD with six or seven uh -huh, songs on EP, it that yep. you guys did. I guess maybe recorded live some of it. Yes, I think, uh, was it Gary Baker had a little, we did it over there on Pine Street in uh, Florence. And I can't remember, oh, I'm terrible. I can't remember what the name of that place was called at the time, but it linked Noise up. Block? Yeah, I think so, maybe. But it linked up with Gary's place, okay. and he had run lines in there to record live, so... We may have been the first ones to try it. I, I may be wrong, but but yeah, we did it, and then we I think we took the you know the files or tape or whatever to somewhere and mixed them. And but yeah, that's out there somewhere. I actually saw that today. It was in my room. I saw it laying there. I need to listen to that. I haven't listened in a while. Was that one of your earliest recording? You I guess you you might have done something with the fiddle worms before that. I, probably the first time I actually did anything was probably two thousand. I just self-financed a little. It almost was like home demos. Um, I did that then. Is that what we came behind the break? And yeah, plow? that's behind the break and plow. And then I guess the next thing is that Fiddle Worms record, maybe. And then you went to Johnny Sandlin's studio to do something, too. I, I went Where over there. That, that was 90, oh, gosh. I had a friend of mine, and she, she was kind of helping out, and she said, you know, where would you, if you... Wanted to go somewhere and cut, you know, where. And I don't know how, but we, we were talking about Johnny's place. And so she booked it, and we went over there. And I really was I, I need to go back and listen to those things, but we wasn't ready. 
the songs weren't there and we were just green as everything. So was that your first experience in the studio pretty much? Yeah, and at some point I had done a little three demo and I bet you, okay, that's probably the very first thing I ever did was in Coleman and gosh, this was probably 89 or 88. Same lady, she said, why don't you go and record, you know, I had written maybe one or two little things. And so we did over there, and it, it, you know, it just it was terrible too. <laughs> but I had to learn somewhere. So yeah, it was like Coleman, and I think that place was called Baker's Music, and I think it's still a music store over there, maybe. But I did that, and yeah, gosh, I'm all out of line in the chronological order here. But I think that was my very first thing. Yeah. And um, and how did you just mention, you know, writing your own songs, but. When did that start for you? Is that something you, you tried fairly early on? I tried very early on, and it was just, you know, I would sit there with a, a little tape deck and record and listen back, and it would be like, you know, it's got the germ of something, but I never could, you know, flesh it out and elaborate and make it a cohesive type, really good, solid punch of a song. And then I just kind of got away from it for a little while. And honestly, it was probably because I was playing with Russell and he was writing such great songs. Well, you know, why, why would I need to try to, you know, convince him that mine, because you know, it just, I just yeah, feel like writing. he's such a great songwriter. Yes, and I mean, he's he's that way out of the gate. He, you know, you start looking at his lyrics and it's like, whoa, you know. Um, But yeah, and then, and it's like, I just feel like now I'm getting more comfortable and I still don't want... It's, you know, you say you're a songwriter, but it's like, really, I say that trying to convince myself. <laughs> you know, I mean, I, if I have a hit, you know, and maybe that's not the way to look at it, but, um, I mean, my main goal is just to write something that I feel like is a great piece of art that stands. You know, I want something to last. Yeah. And it doesn't necessarily have to be a number one song or a grammy winner but if it if it moves people enough that everybody still wants to hear it years later that's that's what i'm i would like to shoot for yeah one of my favorite songs of yours i think was part of the kenny and the c notes project and oh, then yeah. you later re-recorded it for a soundtrack and then we put it on the album we did yeah and that's good things that you wrote with donna jean right uh, how did that song come about? Again, with the tunings. I think I'd put my guitar in like a, I think it's in an E minor tuning. I, all I did was tune the A and the D string up a whole step and got like, you know, where you hit it, it was an E minor chord. But then I started noodling around one day when I was restringing the guitar and I put it in that tuning. And it was like I was coming up with a little finger picking pattern, a little melody that sounded major, even though I had the guitar tuned in a minor key. And I was just noodling around with that one day, and Donna said, ooh, I love that. And she said, let me go record that. And she brought a little tape recorder out and recorded me doing it. And, she, and I said, well, Donna, I said, I've just got three or four little sections, and I, I don't even know how I'm going to string them together yet. She said, well, just play the sections. Just you know, play one section over and over, play another section over and over, and the other one. So within like a week or so, she said, you know, I put some words to that. And I said, well, have at it, you know, yeah. And she said, oh, you really going to let me have it? I said, yeah. She said, well, I've already got some. So then the next time we got together, she said, okay, play the first section. And I'd play it, and then she'd go, okay, we're fixing to go. So she put it together. So I just had the music, and she kind of outlined it and then filled in the lyrics and the melody. And, yeah, it's a beautiful song. Was that the first time you collaborated with somebody on, on a song? or That and probably, you know, writing with Scott. Um. Yeah, her and Scott, I would think. Something that I felt like I could really use afterwards, yeah. you know. I'm, I had gotten together with all kind of people and just, you know, there, there would be times, and, and you know how it is, I, it still happens even after you've written for a long time. Sometimes you just get in a room with somebody and you're going to try to write a song and you just kind of stare at each other. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and I've had that, I had had, you know, I'd had that happen building up to trying to write and it just, it, it would wig me out. I would think, I don't really have nothing to say. You know, and, and so, but then I it, I took it as a challenge. It was like, I'm going to make myself right with somebody and I'm going to force myself to have a kernel of an idea when I come into the room. 
to where if they don't, we can at least start trying to beat and chase that idea down. Yeah, so with Scott Boyer, you did uh, make, make this, this last, last minute last. last. How did you meet Scott or get introduced to him? Again, moving up here in the um, early 90s, it's like every Tuesday night on 2nd Street in Muscle Shoals, there was a place called the Union Station. And another, back then it just seemed like there were really great, cool club owners, um, just like Carl at the uh, fill-in station, which was over in Sheffield on Hatch. The Union Station was in Muscle Shoals on 2nd Street, and Danny Lambert had that. And he was such a sweetheart. And uh, we played there on the weekend some. But every Tuesday night, the decoys played, which was Kelvin Holly, Scott Boyer, N.C. Thurman. And when I first started seeing them, it was Butch McDade, McDade playing drums, Jimmy Clay pay, playing bass. And I think before I started seeing them, Chalmers was with them. But when I started seeing them, it was just N.C. And, man, to, I mean, and it was great, too, because our buddy uh, was a sound guy, and he ran sound. So I'd go and hang out with him. And, but, but regardless, every Tuesday night, if you were a music fan or a musician, you went over there to be schooled because <laughs> those guys were so tight and so good. And, you know, after they warmed up after the first set, it was like you waited for that second set because they were on fire. And, I mean, it was. It was rock and roll college, you know. It's like and, – and, you would sit there and study and learn how a band should work. You know, it's a tight machine that punches, you know, at the same time, in my opinion. And that's the way they were. They were just so punchy. I mean, the and it was a tight rhythm section, which is Muscle Shoals, right? Yeah. I mean, that, that rhythm section, that's your engine. And if you don't have that, you don't have anything. And I learned that, you know, up here, too. And, I mean, that's where your groove is. That's where you, you catch somebody's attention – you know, from that, and you see the feet tapping and necks goosing, you know, you know, you got them. Yeah, that, you know, that's something. And I uh, talked to David McKay earlier when we do the Mitch Man at the Motro gigs, makes gigs where it's you and me and, and David and, and Jimmy Nutt on drums. Right. We really, you know, kind of feel that there too. It's like, right. it's just a rhythm section. We're just there to support you. But just the rhythm section in itself has become, you know, gotten its own little thing. Oh, yeah. It's, it starts together. there. Yeah. And uh, so anyway, I, don't let me go on attention too far. But, but you know, too, sorry to interrupt, but going back to like the drum thing, that that drum, that percussion, percussion type stuff and the, and the rhythms, and I'm always interested in polyrhythms working together. And it had to have come from, you know, the the school, the drum stuff. And I really don't think about it a lot. But I'm always in, you know, I want my feet tapping before anything. Then I'll yeah. worry about lyrics or something like that. Yeah. So we mentioned Scott Boyer. And a few months ago, you called me one afternoon and said, hey, I got this riff. Right. You want to go over to Scott Boyer's house and see if we can get him to, to write, you know, song. And, and I was a little t tired. I already worked a full day, and I was kind of ready to go home. But I said, "Yeah, why not?" And I'm now I'm so glad right, yeah. that I that you did this because it ended up being Scott's last song that he wrote. It was really meant to be. It really was, and uh, because the, again, that was that was one of those stories where I had I had that little groove, that little chord progression, that riff, whatever it was. Late. I mean, it's been around for three or four years, and the second that I started putting it together, I thought, man, I got to write this with Scott. This sounds just like Scott. Scott could be just all over this and kill it. Yeah. And I, so I'd see him, every time I'd see him, I'd be like, we got to write, and yeah, and he'd go, yeah, we got to write that song. We got to write, and for some reason that day, I, I don't know what happened, but I, I was just like, yeah, and I need to call Andreas and hook it all up, and that'd be great. All three of us write this song. And yeah, we did, and then within a week, he was gone. Yeah, and he was, you know, frail, but he was on top of it. He was on fire, and he, uh, you remember. It was his title. And, mm -hmm. and too, you remember how he would just sit there, and he'd be real quiet, and then all of a sudden he would just look up, and he'd spit out a line, and it was like, wait a minute, what did you just say? Write it down quickly before we forget it. Yeah, and but, we, we, we left with a finished song pretty, pretty much. Yep. And, uh, and actually had started another one. Yeah, that's true, too. 
with the idea of coming back to finish it now, like you said, we need to finish it in honor of him and memory. Yeah. Homage. That's true. Would you mind playing Stop Subtracting that last song we wrote with, with Scott? Mm -hmm. All right, let's do it. One, two, three. all good at the start You were off on a promising path We were more than the sum of the parts Until we started doing the math I used to love you so much Nothing I wouldn't do Now every little Just ain't good enough Stop subtracting Thinking about what you can add Stop subtracting Don't take away the good we had Stop that whining Talking about what you ain't got Man, I get so tired Of always being put on the spot Stop being cryptic So pessimistic When the going gets rough Cause you're complaining Life itself is hard enough Stop subtracting Thinking about what you can have Stop subtracting Take away the good playing with the fill worms on and off more on than off right probably okay. yeah because i took some time off uh when my youngest son was born in 2006 i took a little time off the boys were they were wanting to get out on and do some road stuff and i, I just i needed to be home you know so i took some time off but then as as everything and that's what i love about david anytime david says mckay says that any you know if anybody says who do you play with he says i'm just part of the fiddle worms family and that's that's a good way of because yeah we're scattered and there's a bunch of us and we're all in and out and like right now Rob's playing with Rob and the proponents and uh, you know we've got the mojo mixers and then play with Russell and we're about to play the Helen Keller festival Russell Medford and friends gonna put some different people together so yeah it's just a big extended family and everybody everybody is is on the same level and everybody's just laid back and easy going and it's all about music and family and food sometimes <laughs> yeah and the fiddle worms record a couple of your your tunes too over the years 
Right. And we got to do a live record right here where we're sitting right yeah, here at the Nerd House, which that's a great. I'm record. very proud of that record still. It's just like you guys were on fire those couple nights, and uh, and it's uh, I love that. It's just good, good, good sounding record. And then we got the Mocha mixers, which you you kind of already had, and we we kind of just the four of us kind of started doing that some more, and you do gigs in different configuration right. at, at times as well as your solo gigs that you still do a lot. And the, the record that we did where we started our conversation today called Blackwater Creek came out about four years ago, I guess. I think so. Um, we talked about how it all started. And, but then we, we came here to the Nuthouse too and I guess, you know, you had you know, all these songs to, to choose from. I guess it was pretty, I mean, made a lot of sense to me that it's mainly going to be originals, although right. when you do the live thing and play four hours, you also mix it with different different covers right. as well. And then you called some of your friends to, to, to help out, but it's pretty much your live gig, which just tried to, get that on the record right did you get that right mm -hmm. so uh we had scott boyer joined you on the song that the two of you co-wrote right donna came in and sang on a couple russell came in and sang on a couple again it's uh, just family and <laughs> yeah as russell says family friends and family yeah. that absolutely together. and i know you know you've been writing for a long time but now for the past year or so, and correct me if I'm wrong, you've become a more prolific writer. Yeah, again, I just have this, it just, it's weird to me to say I'm a writer because I, you know, I mean, I make my living playing music, but it's like, I don't know, in my head, I just can't get it to where it, that's just the first thing I say. I'm always a musician or, uh, you know, a guitarist, singer, songwriter. Songwriters always last. But for the past year, uh, again, I just it's just been a challenge to, you know, buck up and be what, you know, you're saying you're going to be or what you are. Um, and again, too, if it was up to my own devices, I, I would be lackadaisical about it. And, and too, I overthink things, you know. It's like when I when I write something, I, I, I just start immediately. It's like, is this good enough? You know, is is this gonna is this gonna make the cut? You know, is it is it gonna be something? And if it's not from the get go, I, my immediate thing is just to give up on it. And you can't do that. You know, you gotta either make it. You gotta flesh it out and make it work and be the craftsman that you you should be about it, or you you need to know immediately that it's not working and and you know turn it around. But you got to do something. So I, I started getting into that mode of thinking. Just do it, even if it. And I think I read somewhere where some songwriter said that it helped him to <clears throat> get to a place where he didn't care if it was good or bad. He didn't care if anybody even heard it or not, except him. Just finish it, you know. And so that's. It started with that, and a lot of it too. It, it all comes back to you a lot of times. Um, we did that, um, was it, uh, I guess it was Last Handy, because it's been about a year, like you said. Yeah. You put that thing together about uh, female songwriters, and Stephanie Brown, that had, uh, she had a hit uh, with Garth Brooks' Burning Bridges, and what's unique about Stephanie is she writes, but she doesn't, she doesn't really play an instrument, per se. I mean, she can get on the piano and tinkle around, but um, she doesn't play enough, so when you come in, you just start, you start talking, you know, you start talking about what you're thinking about, what you, you know, what this song is really about. And she, one of her best strengths is, is and what a great match for me, keeping you on task. You know, it's like, does this make sense? Are we really getting to the point of what we're trying to say? And are we, you know, is that thread all the way through it? So, so then I start realizing this lady is a craftsman. She knows what she's doing. And again, through you, Mark Narmore, too. You know, I met Mark. I mean, I've always known Mark, but I've been around him a lot more since you've been around, right? Yeah, and we've us, been doing the Alabama Bus Boys right. shows every now and then. And going to 
far off places. Um, what we've been to New York, yeah, Atlanta, Atlanta. and Nashville, yeah. But um, and Mark's the same way. You know, he is a songwriter. I mean, he's had a hit or hits, you know, and and cuts and and so he he knows. And somebody said one time, it's you know, when you start writing a song, you know what you got in your truck bed. Now you got to unload it and set it up. So he uh, he knows how to unload the truck. You know, he knows how to get in there and start hammering out. And if somebody, you know, you start bogging down, let's take a break for a minute. Let's rethink. Okay, back on it. You know, and it's it's work. Yeah. And and I've always tried to keep it fun, but sometimes it has to turn into work. And so yeah. that's what I've been doing for a year. Yeah, with and especially with the you know those folks. And through Mark, I met Jim Gaines and Sandy Carroll, his wife Sandy Carroll, and she's a great songwriter. So writing with that bunch, you know, it's just been it's been good, and it's helped me to come back to other you know like me and you writing or me and Scott writing because now I feel like I'm more of a you know I can bring something to the table whereas I used to just kind of stare at everybody. Yeah. And you got together with Donnie Fritz to write one too. Yes, and that was oh, that was a treat because I mean, again, he's he's been you know around here and one of the guys that you look up to, just a legend walking around, and you bump into him every you know everywhere. Mm -hmm. My and, and again, I love stories. I'm sorry, let me throw this in here. The other day when we were at Champies, this place where we always play, we love Champies on Second Street, Muscle yeah. Shoals. Love, love with a capital L. Yes. Such a great place to play, a little funky room, good chicken. And Donnie had come and sat in with us. And so we're standing, waiting to get into the restroom. And there's albums all over the walls. And I've been on a, a Sly and the Family Stone kick lately and trying to get some vinyl on those guys. And so we see one of the covers on the wall. I'm like, man, I'm really into those guys right now. He turns and he says, you know, I played on stage at Madison Square Garden with him one time. <laughs> I went, what? <laughs> he says, yep. He said, I was playing with Chris, and we were all there with a bunch of different folks at Madison Square Garden for some kind of benefit. And he said, I don't even remember when or what it was for. And he said, all of a sudden, Sly stood up and said, well, I want to go back out there and play one more. He said, come on. And so he started slowly talking this first one and another to get up on stage with him to play something, whatever. And so Donnie said, well, I'll go with you. So Donnie goes out, and I think he either played tambourine or something, some just kind of minuscule percussion thing. He said, but I played tambourine with Sly Stone at Madison Square Garden. You, you can't beat standing around at a chicken shack getting told that story from Donnie Fritz anywhere but right here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Only Muscle Shoals. That's right. So – Thank you so much for thank you for having me and letting me passed out with me and sharing all your stories and uh, playing your songs. Uh, I just wish you the best of luck with everything that's ahead. I'm sure there's going to be many more great songs. Oh yeah, uh, we're gonna... shows, hopefully records too. So uh, all the best to you. All the best to you, and I, you know I love you and I appreciate you. Oh, it's mutual. Yes. Totally. <laughs> After our conversation, Mitch and I grabbed a couple guitars and played a few of the songs we recently wrote. One, two, three. I've seen more creeks and streets. I've been to poor for power. So I learned how to howl around midnight out. Been the blue note for the struggle of
Songs. Yeah, we we didn't even talk about writing that one. One, two, here we go. Monday morning drags you out of bed. Tuesday takes a two before the head. Got you hurt all kind of way. Thursday's got you turned around. Friday, she wants you to take her up time. Saturday, you might get sleeping late. Seven days Another Monday come Before you know Tuesday is moving Much too slow Wednesday's another day To lead you astray Thursday's just as blue as can be Friday she gives you the third This was the 33rd episode of the Crazy Chester Radio Hour. We taped it at the Nuthouse Recording Studio in Sheffield, Alabama. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure to check out some of our earlier episodes and subscribe to the Crazy Chester Radio Hour. If you'd like to get a copy of Mitch's Blackwater Creek album, you'll find it at crazychesterrecords.com or all online retailers. Goodbye for now. Until next week. <laughs>